The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. This podcast is powered by SportStrength. Your digital water cooler. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Attention to Detail Podcast. I'm your host, Coleman Ayers. Today, I'm lucky enough to have my guy Angus Bradley all the way from Australia on the show. And this is a super unique episode. Angus is a crazy funny dude. He knows his shit, but at the same time, he's willing to kind of joke off a little bit, get off track, go on tangents that always end up to be super interesting. Um, so it's definitely one of the more engaging shows you'll ever listen to. Talked different topics within the performance training realm, so you guys can gain a lot. Uh, but also you'll find yourself kind of going back to the basics after this episode and realizing that maybe sometimes we think too much. And there are a lot of realizations. We talk creativity, a bunch of things like that. So I'm going to let him do the talking, get to the podcast. Let's get it. Welcome. Got my guy Angus Bradley here all the way from Australia. What's going um, on, everyone? I am super excited to have an Aussie on here. I was uh, blessed to be over there, I believe, last month. And... Definitely still missing it. That's uh, oh, so you are only just here. Yeah, bro. I was literally just there. I was oh, literally I just there. And I, I think I want to say you were out of town because I was going to hit you up. And I was like, either you were out of town or I can't remember exactly why I didn't, I didn't shoot you a DM. Um, but I mean, so it's I'll come be, track you down in America. Yeah. I mean, you'll be in Florida. I'm in Miami. So I don't know, man. We'll be, uh, yeah. we'll be in the same state. But no, I, I love Australia. I, uh, I think the people are just overall better out there. Sorry, Americans, but uh, <laughs> yeah, man, we'll be over there soon. So, so we'll be uh, connected in person in the flesh soon. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, I, I try to keep the the podcast super bare bones and just get straight to it. Um, you know, I'm always the type of guy who just skips through the intros and stuff. Just be completely real. 
So I want to get straight to it today and uh, talk about some of your Instagram posts. So I was telling you a few seconds ago, this will be a pretty interesting uh, format in the sense of I have, I believe, five of your Instagram posts saved and screenshotted. And number one, love the Instagram page. I think it's a super organic, uh, just kind of natural way. It's like you're not trying too hard. You're just throwing up texts and, you know, a couple of videos and pictures here and there. And, you know, people love it. And that's for a reason. You talk the about text posting. Well. Yeah. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. It's, hey, it's everyone great. said that it was all reels and everyone's like, oh, I got to spend seven hours editing a reel and then Bro, no one exactly. watches it. And hopefully I've <laughs> liberated some people from that. <laughs> oh, 100%. You definitely have. And I think it's good because like you said, you know, sometimes there's only so much that you can text or type and it leaves some room for conversation, which is exactly why I want to have those conversations with you. Um, and to be fair, I mean, we're on the same page with 99. I mean, I don't think I've seen a post that I've disagreed with. So it's not like we're going to be having super critical dialogue and arguments. A lot of it's just going to be us kind of rambling on about these. Um, but hey, I mean, I think that's, that's valuable. So yeah. let's get started. Um, this is one that I found super interesting, relatable, instead of focusing on optimal training, it's probably more useful to look at all the apparently quote unquote suboptimal training people are doing. And it's still getting crazy results, being able to explain why someone still got a result, even with the suboptimal program will help you develop the broadest, most useful toolbox to help meet your clients, individual needs and wants. If you're truly results oriented, you have to master the, the art of satisfying the quote unquote good enough approach rather than the quote unquote optimal one. All right. So it's, it kind of speaks for itself, but talk to me. Um, I just remember when I was, I was going to say growing up as a coach, but you know, I started coaching people when I was 22, but I guess when I was starting out as a coach, uh, I used to see so many people who were so much higher level than me and they'll be like, man, like you've got to know about this from a biomechanics perspective or human movement perspective. And you need to know about like these complex periodization schemes and like, you know, all this phasic potentiation, all this heavy sort of structure. And if, if someone doesn't have a really scientifically optimized and individualized program, you're never going to see results. And I almost bought into that because... I did buy into it for a brief period of yeah. time because, again, you know, when you're coming into the fitness industry, people like, you know, nothing. You need to learn all this fitness specific information. So I just sort of drunk the Kool-Aid. I was like, all right, everything has to be optimized. Everything has to be individualized as well. Um, my biggest passion from a training perspective when I got into the fitness industry was Olympic weightlifting. And mm -hmm. anyone who goes down the Olympic lifting rabbit hole, especially the history of it, runs into this thing called the Bulgarian team and Bulgarian style mm -hmm. training. And they were sort of famous for, you know, being one of the most elite competitive weightlifting teams of all time. They won in that 1970s sort of period where it was seen as the height of the USSR. And they were the people that were coming up with all these complex science-based individualized and optimized periodization models that were heavily centered around a lot of da a real data driven approach and really really focused on optimization and obviously the bulgarians and the russians were all hammer and drugs but what the bulgarians did is they all they did was rock up to a training hall max out multiple times a day um, it was a hyper competitive environment 
like you know russia it's interesting they had national training centers scattered all around the country so if you're the best weightlifter the second best weightlifter might be a thousand miles away and they didn't have instagram back then so it's like i heard he's lifting about this much but yeah. like that's not nearly as motivating as like the guy on who's like second behind you on the national team is literally on the same platform as you day in day out you're like acutely aware of that um and, and so i think like there's all these other things that people see as like suboptimal training and like I don't want to ignore things that I've seen work because as soon as I've seen something work, I know that it wasn't so bad that it was a, I call it like a threat to the system. Like that's my suboptimal approach to training. We need to satisfy good enough and then manage threats to the system. Um, and yeah, so it was, I think the Bulgarian team was just the biggest wake up call to me. So I'm like, oh, they didn't even periodize at all well like yeah. periodization isn't something you actively do i believe now that it's an emergent quality so i guess there was some form of periodization in hindsight it just wasn't that complicated um and then sort of just working backwards from that because i think you know that's a stereotype right just ego lifters who go into the gym yeah. and who max out every single day you're like you'll never get results doing that and like God damn, you'll probably injure a few people. And like, that's the caveat, like, right? Like you have to be realistic about it. Why did the Bulgarian system work? It satisfied a lot of good enough boxes. Why yeah. we probably can't employ those tactics with our athletes is because we're not pumping them full of drugs. Right. And if we, if we we're, we're desperate to get our hands on a superstar athlete and we don't want to break them. Whereas in Bulgaria, the amount of talent that they had to draw upon, like if you broke your best guy, you had a guy who lifted two kilos less than him. So it's like, eh, it was almost like this talent <laughs> identification system. So apologies for the long-winded answer, but it was just, just sort of this, I was a hyper-optimal trainer, sort of starting out, always trying to create the perfect program. And I had so much stress as a coach because yeah. I took so much pressure by like, it's on me. And and if I write this program and it's perfect and it's tailored to the person in front of me, it's based off all these like predictive models and things like that, like I know they're going to get results. Whereas once you sort of acknowledge reality and what you've seen work, then it sort of empowers you to be like, okay, I just need to be a facilitator for this person. And ultimately it's on them to go out and apply this themselves to this program and that's the thing like you can't have optimal outside of the subjective perspective of the individual who's going to be completing the program because again especially as we start to engage with this biopsychosocial lens you're gonna be like man like is this young kid that i train actually gonna apply himself right. to this program if he doesn't like it and like in a perfect world he'd just do whatever you tell him but again humans are a bit more complex than that and it turns out doing things that you like makes it really yes. really productive and makes your training really cognitively engaging to the point where like it's conversations with John Kiley who's really empowered me to lean into this like the athlete thinking that the program will work because mm -hmm. human beings at our core are allostatic predictive systems if you have an athlete and you've written a good enough program and the athlete looks at the program is like I think this program is fucking dynamite I can't wait to attack these workouts and like and maybe you even have like and, and let's say that that's their perfect program, right? But like, let's take it a step further. Like, because I hate, in, I don't hate individualization. Sorry. I think it was massively overhyped. Like, right. I think even like if he wants to go off that program that he even likes so he can complete a workout with a buddy, like those guys are going to put in that effort because again, facilitating that competitive environment. Um, so yeah, sorry for the long-winded answer. No. I, like I moved around a little bit, but hopefully I touched on enough things to sort of give people a perspective of the world I've been living in and the journey I've been on for the last couple of years down this sort of fuck optimal rabbit hole. Oh, <laughs> can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Fuck okay. it. Yeah, come on.
Um, no, but I think number one, amazing answer. Number two, I think all that stress that we get of like, you know, we've all had that time where it's like we're doing a program, you know, a kid starts messing around or we're going kind of off of that optimal quote unquote uh, line. And we're like, damn, this is this is opposite of what I read in super training or like this is opposite of like this book or this research. And there are even times where like a fucking research journal comes into my mind. I'm like, God, I'm doing the opposite of this. And it's like, is this going to work better than what I would do if I were following that step by step? Probably. Is this athlete more engaged? Probably. And there are yeah. so many things that work that either aren't documented in research or the research is super blurry. And, you know, I love research, but at the same time, there's a lot behind that. There's a lot that doesn't go into that. Um, a lot of confounding variables when we're in the weight room with 10 athletes at a time. And you got to consider the psychological effects. You got to consider all these other things that are going into it that aren't really just that controlled research environment. So that's why I think, you know, a lot of coaches will go strictly that that kind of research to practical pipeline. And for me, yeah. it's like, you know, I'll do that sometimes. But for a lot of the time, it's like, let me try the practical and then try to find research to kind of support or, or, or go against that conversation and just see what happens there. Or just be like, fuck it, it works. I'm not going to look at the research. So I think it's your worldview that underpins that as well, because I view yeah. training as equal parts art and science. And I think a lot of people in this yes. evidence space, yeah. data driven era, view it as a pure science. And it's like, especially like if you actually look at what a lot of the emerging scientific body is telling us again with a lot of these biopsychosocial concepts, dynamic systems theory, it's just like you have to sort of acknowledge these things. Like things are sort of turning us back to subjectivity. Even the data is telling us it's like no biopsychosocial. You feel feelings matter it's not just about these inputs and and trying to predict these athletes it's um and, and uh, like just to go further down that rabbit hole like i use, i identify as an intelligent person i identify as a really intelligent program designer and things like that and like right. i used to get really frustrated when i'd see coaches down the road with a sick facility and they were just charismatic people and they had pumping music in their facility yes. and they had awesome equipment and they just used <laughs> to get crazy results. And like, yeah. there was just a certain point I'd be like, oh, that's just a cheerleader trainer. But I was just like, oh, wait, like what's wrong with like hyping up your athletes and, and yeah. motivating the hell out of them? And like, I was like, no, nah, but like, you know, I stay up all night perfecting these programs. And if only they trained with me, like they're just trying to train with the cool guy. But I'm like, oh, like I've realized as well, like as a coach, it's a really good quality to have a bit of that guru into you, have a bit of that charisma in you. So people are drawn to you. They want to be around you, be a bit of an aspirational figure, not just be some troglodyte who's covered in research papers and sort of, yeah. No, for sure. And I mean, anytime, because we all do that where we'll look at another trainer, another coach and just be like, what is this and how are they getting results? And I think, I mean, the answer to that, from what I can tell is like, look, everyone does something right. I mean, with the exception of a few guys whose names will probably not be spoken here. There can know? be luck involved. 100%. Exa yes, there's absolutely luck involved. And when luck is paired with a great ass environment and one that is conducive to athletes uh, creating buy-in, then, you know, that's there's it's a pretty good chance it's going to get results. So if we can combine what they're doing to get lucky with the environment with, you know, being educated and, and a, a hint of that programming, staying up all night, still being yeah. kind of a nerd, but also taking from what all these people have gotten results in without doing that. And chances are, that's when we take that next step. Um, you know, if you can embody both, like if yes, you can exactly. be that aspirational figure, exactly. if you can care about the environment, if you can foster the competitive scene and have some right. shred of an intelligent program, yeah. you just, you got, your results will just be insane. 
Yes, exactly. All right. So moving on to the next one, which is kind of on this same uh, topic, I would say ish. Um, good training doesn't have to be boring. Just admit that you don't know where or you don't know how to meet clients where they're at. What's most <laughs> important is helping people build a relationship with training. The real yeah, results yeah. come off the back of that, not your dumb little six week transformation program. You yeah. really, t- I love this part. You're really telling me that Jenny from accounting needs a rigid, boring training protocol to shed five pounds and improve her bone density. What planet are you living on? Because <laughs> yeah. that's go. it. Like we see so many people have a real dedicated, they, um, well, a lot of gen pop, especially if they sort of binge eat and things like that, or like maybe yeah. they binge drink and then they come in and they binge exercise for six weeks and then they fall off the wag with that. So, you know, it's just that pattern of, uh, wherever you go, there you are. Whereas sort of like what I view as important. And again, a lot of people, I think, put this down the category of like, oh, you don't want to just be doing entertainment as we sort of call it and like entertaining your client, playing games with them and stuff. It's like, you don't get results doing that. I'm like, you don't get results doing that in six weeks. But are you telling me if you get someone to engage in health-seeking behavior for a decade, you make them a lifetime fitness enthusiast because you've helped them develop a positive relationship with this thing. It's like, that's how you get crazy results. Like you get someone into this for the next 10 years. And it's really, really hard to do that in an intelligent, systematic way. But if you can push yourself to do that and like... It's a really obvious metaphor, I think, when you look at the gen pop, right? Like you're going to ruin exercise for someone if you just get them into this six-week challenge. But it's the same thing. Like how strong does a basketball athlete need to get? Like how competent in the gym do they need to be? It's like that you can probably give them a couple of years to get there. And again, it's more about the relationship that they build with it because it's something that I hear a lot of like, you know, and and obviously a lot of these top level NBA freaks are surviving at the highest level and they don't like, they actively hate the gym. They avoid it at all costs. But I wonder if they had a positive relationship with it. Like, could they get a bit more out of it? Whether it's from a longevity perspective, a resilience perspective, or maybe even a performance perspective. It's just like, man, it's a real shame that they haven't had that opportunity to develop that positive relationship with it and i think we've always sort of pretended that it's an athlete attitude problem but it's like no it's a coach's attitude problem this like give them what they need not what they want and it's just like again that's just trying to make it all about you as a coach yeah and that's a big mistake no exactly 100 percent. and i think you know it's the whole stick to a a program that you can stick to is better than one that is you know two weeks long and you're just like all right fuck this and i have a ton of athletes that come in and well actually first off i have a ton of athletes from around the world like we have a little discord community and i just kind of ask players questions like all right what are your what are your struggles whatever and all the time they're like wait i thought my training was supposed to hurt every single workout wait i thought my training was supposed to be boring and this this goes for like the skill side of thing and the performance training side of thing like i i, I just they're just bred to have like an inherently poor relationship with training like training's supposed to be a bad thing and It's not to say that it's always going to be fun. Like sucky training is probably good at times to build mental toughness and check some boxes here and there. But it's like, if you don't like it, you're going to burn out. You're not going to enjoy it. You're not going to show up to the gym ready to go. You're not going to get that dopamine flowing during those workouts that's conducive to learning. And at some point, you're just going to stop. And would would we rather not stop? (laughs) Everyone who's an actual gym enthusiast, at a certain point, they're going to want to do the work. 
But what right. comes first is the positive relationship with it. So you can romanticize exactly. that grind. Whereas if you haven't exactly. spent enough time around it, like eventually you just spend a bunch of time in the gym and you'll see other people just going out and getting it and like on yes. their own without being yelled at. And like, that's what was infectious to me. But like, yeah. if you're not hanging around the gym, paying attention for long enough, you're never going to get that rub. Yes, exactly. So I'm curious what do you and this obviously is very individualized in the sense that it changes for everyone what would you say are some big things that you implement to make the training environment a little bit more fun a little bit more engaging um again not focusing so much on individualization especially where there's potential to have a group competitive atmosphere yes. um not worrying about overstructuring things there's a concept that mladen jovanovic got me onto he talks about it in his book strength training manual which is minimum viable yeah. programming which again like every yeah. other coach is trying to structure things out and just be like i need this specific variation uh, i need you to do a back squat at 85 percent, three sets of five you know and then the next workout yeah. whereas what if like what if you challenged yourself as a coach to consider what's the minimum amount of structure you could give someone where they could still have productive training? And especially when you're dealing with people who haven't had much exposure to the weight room, man, like you mm. could probably be like, uh, I need you to perform a squat pattern twice a week. I want you to work to within two reps of failure for a couple of sets. Uh, I don't care if you put it on your back. I don't care if you put it on yeah. your front. I don't care if you zerture it. Uh, if you tell me you want to do split squats, it's like, well, you're not a competitive strength athlete so yeah just i just right. need you to train your legs twice a week maybe <laughs> yes. what leg exercises do you like and 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 then all of a sudden you have an athlete who's teaching you what they like and yes. then and maybe you can show them a few things be like i reckon it's like so you liked this have you thought about trying this leg exercise because i reckon you would vibe with that because that's kind of a similar thing and and then you can just sort of show them this toolbox and uh yeah it's just uh, no. mvp has been phenomenally useful um what was the actual question again what what is the thing first off as fucking fire number one or uh question actually was yeah what do you do damn i'm trying ah what are some things that you do incorporate to create an engaging fun program oh, so that's one that's, that's one for okay. sure and yeah. uh a reactive approach to programming so i don't like to plan too far out in advance because again i'm always trying to minimize the predictive component of my training planning and it's like i would rather just program one week at a time so as soon as my athletes doesn't seem cognitively engaged with their program i can pull them aside and be like hey what changes do we need to make here right. so you're excited to show up at the gym on monday uh and i think that's really valuable as well e even from a just training planning perspective from the intensity perspective and the volume perspective but again, just also when they need a change up. Whereas if you planned out fucking six weeks in advance for the yeah. athlete, you're going to be a bit annoyed when they're like, hey, coach, like, uh, I know I'm only yes. three weeks into this cycle, but I'm just hating it, man. And then like, yeah, you are angry and you're emotional because you wasted a bunch of time writing this program that they're not no longer doing. Whereas if you just stay in the moment with your athlete, program one week at a time. I know from a psychological perspective, some people want to see a plan for the future. So maybe it's okay to have a little bit of a scaffold out there just so you're like, hey, look, right. I do have a vision for where this is going. I'm not just flying by the seat of my pants, but I just think generally, as an industry we have this tendency to overstructure and and look too far out into the future rather than living in the present moment and and trying to come up with a program that's reflective of the athletes ever evolving but very slowly changing needs in real time and being engaged with watching that and trying to perceive that and trying to bring it to life through a reactive programming approach mm. yes no i love that and i think one of the big things to realize is that 
99.9% of strength coaches are not working with super trained athletes. And yes, like even for me, if I'm working with a professional basketball player, they're super trained in a basketball sense, like from a basketball perspective, hell yeah. In the weight room, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Even I can do anything. Lifting, yeah, yeah exactly. You can do anything and you can, that low hanging fruit is literally like right here. And I'm like, bro, why, why not just take that? So yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, just before it slips out of my mind, one, one yeah. of the things as well that I think is really important for making like cognitively engaging programs before we move on is like, understanding what a consistent stimulus means because again yes. i think a lot of coaches think that your legs won't grow or you won't get stronger <laughs> if you do back squats one week front squats the next week yes. and then split squats on another week it's like man like i refer to the muscles as the dumb meat like they're just in this dark cave and they're just like how much force do i need to produce so i know they're a bit smarter but like for a lot of people's bodies don't know the difference. And it's like what people need is a relatively consistent stimulus. So the same way we're peeling back the structure and testing the limits of that, I also want to pull back on like, okay, how consistent of a stimulus do they need to make progress? Because then again, that opens up the playbook to be like, oh, I can actually mix this up a hell of a lot and right. still have productive training. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think a lot of that comes from like, like you said, our ego as coaches, where we're like, we want to do these super cool things that we've learned and that we've put in so much time into reading books. And it's like, yeah, some of that's good. But in reality, do we need to program down to a T if we're working with athletes who are going to succeed from anything and get better from anything? Like, let's be real here. A lot of that is just us trying to satisfy our own needs. So. It also takes confidence because I know uh, as a young coach, I was really insecure when someone paid me to coach them. I was like, I've got to right. do a lot for this person. I've got to exactly. know a lot of things to them. Whereas eventually you do develop this confidence to, they come to you, they pay you a lot of money and they're like, how should I train? And then you just put it back. Like, how would you like to train? Because uh, then someone was like, why don't I just coach myself? But again, it's just like, there's still value in a coach, having someone to bounce off, having someone who believes in you and who who is aware of a little bit more, a few more of the variables than you are and who can sort of be an influence on you. But um, yeah, I, I was very nervous about that initially, just working with my athletes a lot more. Like I felt like I wasn't being a good enough leader and I wasn't giving them enough direction. But ultimately, I feel like the results have spoken for themselves. Yeah, no, and that's that's very fair. And I think a lot of the value of having coach isn't just the programming side of things, but you know the psychological side of things, how you communicate, how you set up constraints to teach movement, um, kind of the, the things outside of just pure periodization and programming. Um, that's where I see a lot of value in myself, and it's kind of helped me get over that kind of nervous period where I'm like, hmm. And, and they're the athletes that you want. Like, as yeah. a coach, do you want an athlete that's like, tell me what to do. I don't know anything. Like, I really need your help here. It's like, I want an athlete who's just like, all right, I really know what I'm doing with my training. Uh, there's just this one issue. I, I don't know how to overcome this one issue. It's That's the hero's journey embodied, right? And like, that's what good coaching is to me. Where When uh, the student is ready, the master shall appear. I don't want someone hitting me up being like, oh, what weight do I need to pick for my squats? I'm like, I wrote yeah. down RP8. You figure out when it's an eight out of 10. I can exactly. give you some feedback after the fact because it's not that important. And then all of a sudden, you've got these wonderful, brilliant, empowered, autonomous athletes. And man, that's a, that's a pleasure to coach. Oh, 100%. And I mean, from a business standpoint, all right, maybe we want the people who just rely everything on us. But from an actual performance standpoint, we want athletes who can go on vacation for two weeks and not have to pay us to get on zoom with them to lead their workouts like no just go and do your own workouts and 
that's to me that leads to more longevity with clients because they understand the value of it and not just relying on us to do fucking everything. So I don't know. That's a good conversation. Uh, next one. And I refer to this little bit. Um, unless you're trying to just motivate your client, verbal cues typically suck at getting the job done. If one quick verbal cue does not get someone to move how I want them to, I'll find a way to constrain the, the environment so that unwanted movement is no longer possible. Words are wide open for interpretation. Physical constraints such as wall to press, uh, wall to press your back into or different surface to push off sends a much clearer message to the athlete. All right, so talk a little bit about how you use these constraints to teach your movement. I forgot I wrote that one. That was actually a pretty good post. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Sometimes that's I just fine. scroll back through my account. I'm like, oh, what the hell is this? Oh, trash? you got to. There's <laughs> some gems in there. Yeah, there's some gems. Shout out to me. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, I, I think... Um, human beings we've got this amazing prefrontal cortex and and that separates us from a lot of species the way that we can consciously really fixate on our movement and and come up with really unique movement solutions to various problems but then i also think that what we undervalue and maybe lack an awareness of in general is just how like hind brain driven a lot of movement is or even further than that like there are movements that are driven without even hitting our brain so uh, <clears throat> the best example of this that i have is like the stumble reflex the stumble reflex is in your thoracic spine so if you know yeah feedback coming up from the ground that realizes the center of mass has got too far out in front of your base of support signal comes up from the ground through the nervous system up the spinal cord as soon as it hits the thoracic spine boom you trigger a stumble reflex you throw another leg out in front and that's why you go into a little bit of a jog there is so much movement and a lot of the great movement that isn't happening in the prefrontal cortex but that's where all the language is that's where the listening and the communication is so if you're constantly yammering away while your athletes there trying to put in the work or trying to produce uh a ch complete a complex task you're taking them away from that real instinctive sort of movement all your like i said none of your reflexes are in the prefrontal cortex and like ultimately we're trying to develop these uh qualities so our athletes can call on them reflexively in chaotic and intense environments so you've got to become a master of environmental manipulation and we talk about a principle driven approach it's the same way when you're raising a kid not that i'm a parent but i think i have an idea that like you're not meant to tell the kid what to do you're meant to set an example and shape the environment around the kid and the same way you're not meant to tell your athlete how to squat you're meant to shape an environment around them whether it's using a heel wedge handles to hold on to or a backrest to push into or something like that where the environment is communicating to them and, and it's it's a little bit of a process to learn but again when you can become a true master of environmental constraints and manipulation all of a sudden you're getting your athletes to move exactly how you want them to move without saying a word and without making everything this just prefrontal cortex driven so if anyone really understands the brain i have a really primitive understanding of the brain and the nervous system so I know there's some general truth to what I'm saying here in terms of like a lot of the complex overthought out stuff is like forebrain prefrontal cortex activity. And again, a lot of like that instinctive reflexive movement. Again, it's more CNS. It's more amygdala hindbrain sort of activity. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I mean, that's just another value of having a, a coach that's outside of the programming is like, it's a lot easier to use your sentences and take fucking five minutes to coach a squat than it is to just be like all right use this constraint boom they don't even know that they're doing it most times let's go for any movement they don't even know that they're doing it most times and 
I guess, you know, a couple of weeks later, you film them before and after. You're like, did you even know that you were making this change? And they made a change. And that is true value in a coach because that's more long term. That's not just like a quick, you know, we've all coached the athlete who just does like they, they make that little alteration in their movement. And then like next session, it's like, how do you forget this? It's like, well, you forgot yeah. it because it's not, we're not making it reflexive, like you said. And constrain it. If it's still happening, yeah. constrain it so it exactly. can't happen. Yes. The other thing is, I think, um, and I, I fell into this trap a little bit. Like you see certain coaches saying a lot of things. You're like, yeah, that's sick, man. He's like doing a lot of coaching there. It's like, that's a performance, right? Like, and, yes. and I think so much of what we do as coaches is performance art. Whereas like, if you're just there, like putting a heel wedge under him, be like, hold this out in front of you when you bend yeah. your hips and knees. And then you just sit there in silence. as it's going to work. Not that you have to sit there in silence because like, I'm still a fan of using the verbal side of things to motivate. Be like, yeah, get it. Like, let's go. Like, come on, push harder. And like, and, and yeah. sometimes you, I, I still reflexively will say cues, but again, I hope it's just motivation for them. Like when they're really working hard, it's like they can't really hear what you're saying. Right. And when it's a constraint, they can't really do anything other than that. So it's like, even if you give them theoretically the wrong cue, can they really follow that cue if the movement is constrained well enough? So it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. the environment no, sure. is king. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I would rather, and I think cueing too much takes away from the environment. Because and then like you can only say so many words just in terms of matter of time, how long words take to say, you can only say so many words. And if those words are cues that are probably going in one ear and out the other rather than motivation or rather than just letting some music play and shutting up while they do their work, you know, you're taking away from at least how they perceive the environment. Um, so I think that's huge. That is huge. Um, next one here. This one is a visual one, but I'll explain it. Uh, it is the landing you prepared them for. And it's a guy coaching up a perfect landing, arms back right by the hips, you know, perfect, everything amazing. Uh, he's pointing at the knee even, like, look at look how amazing this <laughs> yeah. is. Don't go for the toe. <laughs> and, then, and then it's, you know, I believe this is Tony Hawk. Skater. Making the 900. Yeah, just absolutely butt to the skateboard. One knee is, quote, unquote, knee valgus, you know, just crazy stuff going on and it says the type of landing that's inevitably going to happen expand on this so there's uh two different parts to this line of thinking the first one is i even think if there was uh even if realistically there was this perfect way to land and i think you could in theory develop a technical model around that i think coaches are way off i think a lot of coaches don't understand how we apply force into the ground to stop ourselves from just absolutely crumbling and there is a lot of internal rotation to pressing downward force into the ground to slow yourself down hypothetically even if you could try to coach that into people it's like athletes aren't flying through the air and they're like oh yeah that's <laughs> how i land it's like a lot of the time the basketball environment especially is a great example because it's chaotic you don't get to decide when someone's under you when you're about right. to land or what leg's going to hit the ground first it's like you just are exposed to a landing in a chaotic yeah. environment and i think that athletes do get more competent at landing but it's through exposure to a variety of different styles of landing so i'm just looking for exposure and whatever they show me if it's looking ugly and it's making me nervous then i'm just going to change the exposure to something that looks like they can handle it but ultimately, we have to prepare them for the demands of their game. And I think a lot of these coaches that are obsessed with landing mechanics are just living in la-la land and they're not watching the actual sport and they are 
preparing them for something that's never actually going to occur in the game because when do you see an athlete do a goddamn snap down? Um, so I just think it's like, all right, so you're deliberately avoiding preparing them for the demands of their game. That sounds like a recipe for disaster. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then they get in the game and wonder why shit happens. But no, I think basketball is, is a great example because you're literally in the air. And as with most sports, when you're in the air, you're executing other skills. So it's like you only have so much space up here to focus on let me finish this layup or let me catch this ball or let me do, you know, let me pull off this trick on a skateboard and then immediately switch over to, all right, let me land this perfectly. Uh, knees my, my out, arms yeah, back. exactly. Why exactly. the hell? And again, you have a look at athletes landing. They're reaching right. their arms up. They're not trying to create extra downward force into the ground. Oh, <laughs> yes, so exactly. Gross. And even if stick we Stick the landing as well. That's yeah. another. When do they stick the landing? Say, even if we could, it's like, why? I just, like you said, I don't think the technical model for landing is in the right direction <laughs> because number one, why do we want to stay on the ground? Like you're straight into your next movement. You you're straight picture into- it? just like, um, like just Kyrie Irving. Uh, sorry, yeah, just, just any ba- elite basketball player just just there. flying through the air, doing a Jordan-esque dunk and then landing in a snap down and sticking oh, the yeah. landing like a oh, gymnastics yeah. contest. <laughs> and everyone like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. First snap down that- in the NBA. No, exactly. Yo, wow, that was amazing. And then the other team is going down all the way down the court and scoring because they're not getting back on defense because they're just sitting there and that's not that. When you can just be honest about what you're seeing, it's so yeah. liberating as a coach because everyone who's paying attention to the game sees it. No, exactly. And, and that's why I think a lot of the time, like, you know, we we get into a certain mindset as coaches where we're analyzing things too hard but not doing it from the context of the game. And we can get away. Like, I've had some periods of time where I just kind of stopped watching the game of basketball because I'm, you know, reading more books, which isn't bad. But it's like if we get away from that and start focusing on the super analytical textbook side of things, we, we need that balance where we can then put everything back into the context of the game and say, all right, is this really realistic to, you know, in this context, how an athlete's going to land? When in reality, a lot of the time athletes fall because they're in such a bad situation. I would argue that teaching an athlete how to fall is probably way more or at least just exposing them to falling in a, in a gradually increasing environment is way more important than teaching them, quote unquote, teaching them how to land. 100% falling, one, rolling, tumbling. Yes. Like man, how people feel good, so young when you do that. Oh, ex- oh, yeah. You just build a relationship with the ground and you're tumbling and you're doing all this stuff. It's, it's cool to see. Um, you follow Austin Jokum? Yeah. Yep. He's so good yep. at, at yeah. engaging with all of these concepts in a really playful oh way. Like his athletes always look like they're having the funnest time. Yeah. And like, I know there'd be coaches being like, why aren't they doing serious training? I'm like, man, there's so many hyper athletic concepts packed into all these games. Oh you don't goodness. even understand. And he's got them all competing against each other yes. all the time. The outputs are so super high. It's yeah. I, no, I he's have amazing. a lot of love for the way he does this. He is amazing. And I, I try to replicate that environment. Like I'll literally set up, fucking obstacle courses and parkour stuff sometimes and be like, all right, this is what we're doing. You know, we'll go, we'll get our little load in later in the workout. But for now, you guys are just going to jump over chairs and do all this stuff. And this is and- where I go back to like the artistic component of it. Yes. Like Austin is a true artist with the yeah. way he does these oh, things, but 100%. he's still engaging with the scientific principles of training. It's mm-hmm. like, just if you can just engage with both of those worlds, it's so powerful. Yeah, it is. It is. And athletes see it too. Like you said, they're laughing, they're smiling. And I think they leave maybe the first couple of times like, yo, what the hell is this? 
and I their parents build are trust. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but and then at some point it's like, and you, you know, sometimes you can throw in those little fucking scientific nuggets and things. Um, yeah. The way that we're doing this and just kind of show them that like, there is a reasoning behind it. It's yeah. not just you guys are jumping around and stuff. And I think at some point they come to trust you and they don't even ask because it's like, we know this guy's done his research. We know he's, like you said, blending the science and the art together. And once you get to that point, there's really no nervousness behind like, are these guys trusting me? Is there buy-in here? Yeah. So, no, that's it. That's Sounds it. super sciencey when you're like, well, look, we're an allostatic predictive system. We're also, right. like, you know, introduce them to a bit of dynamic systems theory. Be like, things aren't that straightforward. All of a sudden, you're like, all right, yeah. there is a real scientific underpinning to a lot of this thinking. Um, because that's what I mean. I say it's like combining art and science, but right. art and science are the same thing. Like when you look at cooking, when you look at music, yeah. like they are all this, these fields that simultaneously embody both of these qualities of like, yes, yeah, some objectiveness, like with music, we have like things that are clearly out of tune and like clearly like really annoying to listen to. But then there is so right. much subjectivity within it is like, what mm. music do you like? But then there's, there is this general agreement and same with cooking. Like we all sort of know what good and bad food is, but then again, there's this inherent subjectivity that we all accept yet fitness being the primitive industry that it is, it's just not quite there yet where people are still like, oh, it's a science. It's a like well if you go back to uh, ancient greece where pythagoras had to like use maths and perfect fists to calculate the western scale that now we all learn and play with and we're like oh this is just a pure art form you're like actually it's mathematics yeah no that's very true and i think you know to, to have that art it does take a lot of knowledge and i i think we forget the fact that like you know it's like creativity like if you don't have a very solid base of knowledge it's going to be tough to be creative it's just you know i think it was einstein like creativity is intelligence having fun it's the same thing like the art form is the science all the little scientific nuggets that we know if i i truly believe that if we cannot get creative and come up with novel ways and fun ways to do these things that we don't really know the science behind it or maybe we do we're too engaged in it whatever but i do think that that art comes from knowing the scientific side of things most times at least and that's a testament to having a lot of knowledge not a knock on it yeah and i think um it's just a lot of strength training coaches have never had a creative pursuit or again, maybe they right. did in a previous life and they didn't understand that they learned some things that they could yeah. still apply to this field. And I think as well, like to engage with creativity, like we're in this like real grinder. So like work hard sort of mentality that we bring to this job. And like now I actively try to limit the amount of work that I do each day. So that I have time yeah. to sit there like a kid and get a bit bored because that's ultimately yeah. when those creative juices start flowing. And like, like I said, like that's a really important part of developing my craft so that like and i still can't come up with creative ideas like austin Jokum. like again a lot of my creativity these days sort of is more channeled into content creation and things like that but i think even if you are just a guy in the weight room it's just like try to engage with that boredom and like childlike creativity and uh all of a sudden it's going to supercharge all those scientific training heuristics that you're trying to uh play yes. with no it's a great way to put it just supercharge it and it's funny literally right before this episode I, I was working, I was like, you know, feeling almost like I was too deep in the work. I was like, all right, fuck it. Put my headphones on, turn on some house music, just went out for a walk. Boom, 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 boom. Like 15 ideas just came at me to the point where I'm just like, it's too Dude, much. It's crazy. Like, Yo, this is crazy. I was like, I wouldn't, ex you wouldn't expect it. You would expect all the valuable stuff to be done when you're sitting there at your computer or program. Like when you haven't had signal. 
yeah. and then like all of a sudden you get signal and all your messages just coming in it's just like exactly. as soon as you just get a little bit of space and yes. the stress goes away because you know what it is it's like it's about taking care of your needs if you want to be creative because you do not need to be creative. So you need to have your Maslow's hierarchy and needs be right. taken care of. You need to not be stressed out. And then all of a sudden you are creative because there are so many people that are like, no, I'm not a creative person. You're like, what about when you're a kid? And it's like, well, yeah. what changed? It's like, you got stressed out. You got bills to pay. You're just working as hard as you can. It's like, don't expect to be creative. Um, right. And I think a lot of us didn't have role models that sort of showed us how to embody that aspect of like hard work, but then also leaving space for creativity. So I think that's something that's very important to talk about for the next generation of coaches so they yeah. can start engaging with these concepts earlier in their career. No, exactly. And I think, you know, hard work will maybe yield better initial results because you're just like you're grinding every hour work may equate to an extra $10. But it's like if you really put in perspective, those $10 if you take away ten dollars a day whatever it's seventy dollars a week versus seven hours of being bored or meditate whatever your creative medium is i would invest the creativity that or i would invest seventy dollars to yield that the the level of creativity that i would get from those seven hours of just being creative and i think you have i mean it's tough even me i'm like fuck, i gotta keep working i gotta keep training and it's like no let me just take an hour or two off and that's it never fails where i use is that your thing like so if you need ideas it's headphones on go for a walk i love that because it's like changing your environment sonically yeah. but then also different visual stimulus different sort of environment the smells yeah. change no and i was gonna ask you like what yours is because i've been doing i've been trying a lot of things recently whether just going for a walk like i bought uh a dj set and uh like yeah. studio so now i'm just trying to make music and just kind of going away like i'll literally go and just I try a lot of creative uh, mediums, and I think the reason for that is I just want to stimulate different parts of the brain, and maybe I'll just literally like today I was going for a walk and I saw like a color or something like someone's Christmas decorations, and for some like I was wondering why this happened, but I just and an idea came right to me, and it was completely unrelated from it like, was like magic. Christmas. Like yeah, it is, it is, it, it's crazy. But I'm interested in your creative mediums as well. Um. It's surfing is kind of, but it's mm. tough because I can't have my phone out there. And like, if I go surfing for two or three hours and a, an idea hits me in the first half an hour, it might be gone uh, yeah. by the end of the surf. And that can be kind yeah. of frustrating because I've had it some is. crazy ideas in the surf, but the shower is definitely like that for oh. me now. So, oh, and again, it's probably not good for mindfulness, but like I literally, if an idea hits me in the middle oh, of the shower, the I'll get out of the shower, towel off my hands and write the idea down. And, and I think that that, that practice has been valuable as well. Like so many people have a negative inner monologue and like, again, they say that they don't have any ideas, but I'm like, nah, you just shut your own ideas down yeah. before you even have a chance to write them down. But by building that habit of writing down every little idea that pops into my brain, I'm teaching myself that I respect my own little ideas and things like that. And I think that has been very empowering to then go out and try to bring them to life, whether it's in the form of a program or a piece of content or something like that. Um, I'm also like a pretty high stress, anxious sort of person and like, I think everyone who identifies like that, they always yeah. feel safe when they're wrapped up in bed. And um, I used yeah. to have a really cooked, like the classic S&C coach schedule of working in the AM really early and then you got the middle of the day free and then you come back for the PM shift. And as soon as I got into my safe space, my bed, I would set my alarm and I would close my, my eyes. And then as soon as I would start to relax, boom, an idea boom. would hit me. And then I'd be like, oh, do I just keep going to sleep or do I wake up and write down? I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, write it down. It's worth it. And sometimes I would cycle through that process 
process like five times in a row. And I've just been there, like just doing this lucid sort of thing. Um, it, it, actually, you brought up Einstein because Einstein was the person who sort of confirmed for me that I was onto something with this because he used to have this trick that he did where he would go to have a nap but he would just sit in his chair and he'd have steel marbles in his hand that he'd just roll around and he'd put a steel pan beneath the chair so that when he actually drifted off his hand would relax and he'd drop the marbles into the pan they clang and it'd wake him up and he just scribbled down whatever was in his brain at the time and he's like yeah there was a lot of trash that came out there when i was in that <laughs> semi-lucid state but he said that some of his best ideas came from that sort of method so um, wow. Yeah, maybe a bit of inspiration for some people there. But again, I think the big things are trying to reduce stress and trying to change the environment in some way, because that's really stimulating for from a creative perspective. And being bored, if you can afford yes. that luxury. I know it's hard if you have a high stress job, a lot of bills to paying kids. But again, it's like, there's still a lot of truth in that, even if it's harder to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, the Einstein shit is crazy. I've, <laughs> I've never heard of that. And I'm glad I did, because I'm going to start Maybe not using that exact technique, but uh, naps, man. Yeah, it, don't no, let yourself drift sure. off. It's like it's always worth writing the always idea down. nice. And I, you know that that even the shower, I've always thought like, what about what qualities about the shower so we can kind of reverse engineer this? And it's like number one, like you said, Maslow's hierarchy. Like you're, you're comfortable as hell. You, you're like when you're in the shower, you just feel like nothing's wrong. Should you're feel safe. Like, you got the door yeah. locked. No one's gonna yeah, bust you. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, you're warm. You're safe. You know. So it's like, all right, you don't have to worry about anything, but just letting your mind be free. And then also, you you have to be kind of disconnected from your phone. Maybe play some music. Parts it all kind of comes together. That have been covered in clothes all day. All of a sudden, yeah. got water running along it. So again, like nice. that's like really, really just stimulating from a sensory. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, that's and that's the biggest thing. That's why I feel like surfing probably as well because it's just so much novel stimuli where it's just you know surfing's outrageous man like i can't believe it's a real sport like you're out there in the it's, ocean like the other day there was like dolphins so it was like there's even butterflies that like swim out and oh, sorry crazy. fly out around the line i'm like this is like like i said yeah no that's why i wish i lived in australia um miami does not have waves so can you swim yeah all right when you come back to australia i'll teach you how to surf God, it's gonna be so bad. But hey, no, no. If if you can swim, like trust me, people are just bad at teaching people how to surf. Really? Hey, I I trust you. I'm sure there will be a constraints involved. One one session. (laughs) Yeah, really. Hey, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. All right. Um, No, I was. I don't know how we got to creativity and all that, but that's. (laughs) Hey, I'll take it. That's why we do these type of things. All right. Last one. I'll ask back to the uh, back to the training stuff. Um, I'll just read the second part of it for uh, the sake of time. If you're going to train your core, you might as well treat it like any other body part. Why would you bother training any muscle group exclusively with low load isometric exercises? Gotta have the McGill big tree. Um, Okay, I think the easiest way for me to summarize this is to me, structure dictates function. Uh, When I look at a part of the body and there's a lot of joints, I'm like, ah, I reckon that thing's meant to move a lot. And this is, there's two structures in the human body that have a ridiculously high concentration of joints that a lot of strength and conditioning coaches and uh, PTs and clinicians, for some reason, think shouldn't move. The foot and the rib cage or the entire axial sort of structure, including the spine. I'm like, 
why are the joints there? Like no one has been able to explain why the joints are there if it's not meant to move. And again, like, you know, I, I think people don't understand that human beings don't move in a straight line. We approximate linear movement through rotation. And a big part of our ability to shape change, again, just is about having a dynamic and strong rib cage. Everyone was looking at Usain Bolt being like, oh man, if we could just stop his thorax and his head moving around and his knees coming across his midline, we could make him run faster. But it's like, no, it's just like we're always rotating rotating we're always changing shape through that proximal structure or the way i sort of look at it i got this off integrated kinetic neurology the proximal structure acts as an extension of the distal limb people always talk all this shit about proximal stability distal ability it's like no if you don't move your thorax you are completely limited in your your ability to move your appendages all of a sudden if you have a mobile axial structure you have all these extra positions that you can get into with your appendages because again the axial structure or proximal structure is designed to compensate to facilitate the movement of our limbs uh so again i want my training to be a reflection of that so that's why i just always opt for more dynamic sort of uh, movement-based core training and i'm not against anti-rotation work but i'm like man i feel like we're getting enough of that especially for non-weight room athletes just if they do any uh barbell training or anything like that like that's really good anti-rotation work built into that for them right so it also partially comes down to a training economy perspective as well fair yeah no that's very true and i was it's funny. I was just at this event where they had a couple different like sports, and one of them was was break dancing, and Heck. and I'm I'm looking at these break dancers and they're doing like the worm and shit and like kind of I don't know like lateral flexion with a little bit of rotation. Like I don't even know what to call it, but they're like moving their spine so fluidly, and I'm sitting there trying it. Like I am fucking locked up in my spine, and it's just the nature of how I train. You know, I've been I haven't exposed myself to those movements before. And I literally can't do like the worm and stuff just because my, my joints are just not fed with that movement. And I think that's a that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's a great so. thought experiment. How do people move when they have a back injury? Everything just locks yeah. up proximally, right? How do yeah, healthy exactly. people move? Rip yeah. cages all over the place and spines oh, yeah. all over the place. So it's like, why are you trying to promote? And again, I'm not saying if you just do isometric core training, but you're going to ruin your athleticism. Right, but I'm like, right, right. what are you really pushing for there? Yeah especially if that's your only means of training and you know we gotta we gotta feed our our body with things that we wanted to adapt to simple and i think even when i watch basketball it's like yeah we think of it you know a crossover something where it's like we have to translate our upper body and we think we're doing that strictly just by displacing our center of mass yeah and it's like no like we're shifting here and there's like maybe the shoulders go first and it kind of curves and then like our waist follows and just the spine is always just shifting like this. And I do, I speak to cognitive dissonance is unbelievable. Like yeah. I've p- talked to MLB SNC coaches. They're like, why do you okay. talk about how the ribcage should move so much? I'm like, you ever watch the fucking sport? <laughs> <laughs> you ever seen anyone throw gas? Like, yeah, yeah. ribcage moves a lot. You ever seen someone yeah. swing a bat, hit a dinger? Ribcage moves a lot. Oh yeah. And they're like, oh, we get so many oblique strains and intercostal tears. I'm like, you ever thought about preparing them for the demands of their fucking sport, genius? Oh my god. I don't crazy. say that condescending when I'm in yeah, a consult, no, of but <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. It's good but to be I on am. a podcast where you just vent about. It. It's like, oh. what do you mean you don't think the core should move? <laughs> yeah. Hey, hopefully none of them listen to this and and know that you're talking about them but hey i'm mate, sure that, that's gonna it. stay mate if you mlbs and yeah. c just hear that they were saving millions of dollars worth of players sitting on the sidelines facts facts hey and sometimes people need to hear it that way because that's what will light a fire under their ass so i don't know cool man 
Well, I'm not going to take up too much of your time. Um, I appreciate you for it being a super fun uh, episode. It was definitely thank uh, you. It was some great transparency yeah. is amazing. So I, I definitely appreciate that. Revan sitting here super analytic, which is good sometimes, but you know, got to have some fun with it. So my man, appreciate it. Enjoy Adelaide. Um, I will be back this year. So, or I guess next really? year. Yeah, Excellent. I'll be back next year. So yeah, I'll come out there, learn how to surf, all that stuff, and we'll link up. Get some all right, Wollongong Beach, it's on. Yeah, let's do it.